Numbers 21. Open up your Bibles there. Let's continue on. Numbers 21. We skipped this little story on Wednesday night, much to a couple of people's chagrin. Chagrin, that's a good word. It's a word my mom likes to use. I am chagrined. I'm like, well, I can't see it in your face. Where's the grin? Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. I remind you, this is second generation. We would expect the first generation to get impatient, but now the second generation gets impatient because, as you all know, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, we tend to emulate the things of the generation before. But they became impatient, and verse 5 tells us the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, literally no bread and no water, and we loathe this miserable, this worthless bread. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Only in the Bible, right? <laughs> Oh, Jesus, just help us understand this. And Spirit, give us insight into your intentions from the very beginning of the story all the way to its application. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid, my mom used to drive my brother and I up to Santa Ana. We lived in Mission Viejo. It was the boonies at that time. It was out in the middle of nowhere. People who moved out and bought a house in Mission Viejo, as my parents did in 1967, were foolish because no one was going to live that far outside of a city. If you know anything about Southern California, you know it's all one city from L.A. to San Diego now. But Mission Viejo was out there, and we had to literally get in the car and drive 20, 25 minutes up to Santa, Santa Ana on a two-lane highway to get to doctor appointments, to get shots. Can I just tell you, for a kid, it's bad enough getting in the car and driving five minutes to the doctor to get a shot. When you have a half an hour and you know what's coming, it's, it's, it's abuse. <laughs> we would drive up there, get out of the car, and then there was a long walk from the parking lot into the medical buildings there. And I'll never forget this. It really impressed me that on the large white stone medical building that stood in the middle was a gold pole with a snake wrapped around it. Not knowing anything of history or culture or where these things came from, it freaked me out. I'm like, I know what that is. That's like getting a shot, a snake bite, a shot. Same thing. This snake on a pole, massive golden. I didn't know it at the time, but it's called the rod of Asclepius. Maybe you've heard that. It's a Greek pagan god of medicine and healing. In fact, I think in our Revelation study, we talked a little bit about this. They had a sclepion, which were Greek hospitals of a sort, where people would go for healing and literally lie on the floor, and snakes would crawl over them. No, thank you. No? 
This rod of Asclepius, the, the snake on the pole, is still used as a symbol in over half of the medical establishments in the United States. And it's, it's a pagan symbol, the rod of Asclepius. I remember looking at that thing, thinking, a snake on a pole, that's just weird, man. It's ridiculous. For healing? For a doctor's appointment? A snake on a pole? What is this? Listen, understand something. The, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, is a counterfeiter. He always has been. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. He counterfeits everything. He does not create, he does not come up with something new, something fresh, something different. He takes what is already there and he twists it slightly. He deals in lies and in cheap imitations. That's what the devil does. And it's why paganism and mythology and the occult, they cut and paste their ideas from the truth. You get a lot of truth in some of these branches off or some of these cultish environments. Oh, there's, there's truth there, but it's cut and pasted along with the lies so as to deceive. That's what Satan does. And I'm telling you this because over a thousand years before any of those images of snakes on poles, that is the rod of Asclepius, or also there's a staff of Hermes that's called the Caduceus. That's two snakes intertwined on a pole with wings on it that's also supposed to indicate healing in the Greek pantheon of, of paganism. But a thousand years before any of them came up with that stuff, God already had told Moses, verse 8, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. So all these other things are twistings of the first, of the real, of, of the actual, of the intended by God. Numbers 21 is the earliest account of a snake on a pole for healing in history. It all literally can draw back to this. And that's strange. It's weird that, that God would choose this. But I'll tell you what, stranger still is that Jesus chose this ancient story in Numbers to explain the gospel <laughs> to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. The serpent on the standard is not just an arcane punishment in numbers, it is, my friends, an ancient prophecy. The picture is a prophecy. Turn in your Bibles, and you're going to want to keep it open there to John chapter 3. So John chapter 3 and Numbers 21 will be back and forth. That's where you need to be this morning. John chapter 3 in the New Testament. Picking up in verse 14, middle of a conversation, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Give you a second, you there? John 3, 14. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And then for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What a choice for a Bible study, right? <laughs> only Jesus. He's there with Nick at night. And, and they're talking through these things. And, and Nicodemus is not getting it. Jesus says, remember the snake on the stick, Nick? <laughs> That's me. Okay, Jesus. All right, if you say so. Why did Jesus choose this slithering story? 
to present the gospel. When there's the entire, uh, entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, he could have drawn from if he wanted to draw an old story, fine. But why, why this one in particular? Get the context for it. Nicodemus is struggling to understand heavenly truths by earthly terminology. Jesus had already used some earthly terminology back in verse 4 or verse 3. He said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Earthly terminology for a spiritual heavenly thing. But Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he obey? You're telling me a man has to be born and he's stuck in the flesh. And Jesus is making spiritual application. Down in verse 7, Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. He's trying to draw Nicodemus along. In verse uh, 9, Nicodemus says, How can these things be? And Jesus said, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you that earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So this is the context of Jesus drawing off the old story. He's trying to use earthly things that Nicodemus can understand to present heavenly realities, spiritual truths, trying to draw Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, draw him along. It's always dangerous when a teacher gets stuck in the soul or in the flesh. When we make the Bible all about life learning skills, Rather than what it really is, and that is the focus on Jesus Christ, our hope, our future, our eternity, spiritual things, is for people to become spiritually minded, not earthly minded. So Jesus doubles down to remind Nicodemus of this old familiar story to illuminate for him the greatest gift of God in history. So let's look back at it again. Flip back over to Numbers 21 Verse 4 and 5, then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. See, they had been blocked. Edom refused, and we saw this Wednesday night, Edom refused to allow Israel to just go right up through their land. They said, we'll stand on the king's highway. We won't go to the right or to the left. We won't eat or drink any of your food or, or crops or vineyards or wells. We'll just go straight through. And it would have been a quick hop on up to Hebron, the promised land, they would, be, they would have been in the land in a few days. Edom said, no, and came out in strong force. They've been in strong force against Israel ever since. More about that on Wednesday night, and you listen to that teaching. But Israel now has to go around. They have to go back down toward the tip of the Red Sea, toward what we call a lot today, southern Israel, and then swing around through Edom, Edom to then come up and cross the Jordan 50 miles out of their way. Because their brothers wouldn't let them through. So I get it. They're, they're a little tired. They're a little impatient. The journey's a whole lot longer than they were expecting. I don't know if any of you have ever gone through something where it goes on a whole lot longer than you expected. So the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. Again, I tell you, this miserable bread, manna. We loathe what you're giving to us. We hate it. It's worthless. And they didn't want it. Alexander McLaren said, The valley which stretches from the Dead Sea to the head of the eastern arm of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Akaba, 
down which they had to plod is described as a horrible desert. The neighborhood of Alot at the head of the gulf is still infested with venomous snakes marked with fiery red spots from which, or possibly from the burning inflammation caused by their poison, they are called fiery serpents. So not only is Israel going 50 miles out, out of their way down to the south to hook up back around to the north, but they're walking right into Snakeville, I was going to say USA, but it's not USA, Snakeville, Middle East, into a place where infestations are actually common, even today. They're common. So both the region and the reptile life lend themselves to the divine punishment. Verse 6, the Lord sent, note this, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The Lord sent, the Lord sent, the Lord sent. Underline that. This is a punishment of God. Now you might say, wow, whoa, hold on a second. This is severe. Why? What's the deal? Why is this so harsh? I mean, the last time they grumbled, just a chapter or so back, God responded with water from the rock. Remember? They were thirsty. They were complaining. They were whining. And the Lord said, okay, give them some water. This time, they're speaking against God and Moses. Doesn't seem that different. But this time he says, ha, enough. You've gone too far. Fiery serpents. He sends them their way. Why? This is the eighth and final rebellion, at least recorded in the scriptures, in the Exodus. This is the last one before they come into the promised land. With all the others, the first seven, the grumbling specifically was against Moses and Aaron. Now, it was implied that it was against God, but it was never overtly against God. It was always against God's messengers, God's servant. This is the only time that the people speak directly against God. This is bold, brazen rebellion. It's not subtle rebellion as perhaps before. It's explicit. They're going up against God. Who are you to give us this worthless bread? The Lord doesn't receive that well. It is a bold arrogance here. Note this, at the end of the wilderness journey, if they had listened at all, to the Lord, if they had heard at all what had been said over the years, it would be 40 years total. And they are now at the end of the 40 years. Journey's almost over. God has been faithful since the beginning of this. He will get us in. He said after 40 years, you're going in. It's a done deal. They're at the end of the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, please understand, it's not going to get easier just because we're at the end. There be, may be another 50-mile stretch there may be snakes in the bed. There may be issues in the wilderness, problems ahead. The closer we get to the rapture of the church, and we talked about this recently, the more people will rebel, not the less. It's not going to get easier and easier and easier until we just float up like angels to the heavens. Expect it to get harder. Expect the days to be longer and the sun to be hotter and the land to be drier and the snakes to be present. Expect that. Even believers today are getting culturally corrupted. And it's, it's very concerning. 
when you, when you track these things, and I do from time to time, some of you do as well, when you look at the statistics and read where the Bible is, at least in our country, and how people are responding, when you look at people's worldview, how even in the church the worldview is so much more worldly now than it's ever been, at least in this country's history. We're at the end of the wilderness, man. We're almost done. This should be the time for rejoicing and praising and focus. But this is often time when rebellion gets greater. My folks used to call it prison escape syndrome. They mentioned that to me usually every year around May as the school year was almost over and I just started to flake on everything. Prison escape syndrome, you just want to escape from prison in the last few days of your incarceration. Now, I agree with them with the, the whole using incarceration for school. I thought that was appropriate. But prison escape, you're, you're trying to get out. Just see it through. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why, Paul? Because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wilderness is almost through. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you believe that? See, I do. I do. I believe that we are coming right around and up into the promised land. We're right there. Don't give up. Don't give in. And that's part of the reason why I think this is such a severe punishment is the Lord nips sin in the bud before it can bloom and flower and blossom and spread into the promised land. We are not going to have this kind of rebellion as we go into the promised land. So he sends fiery serpents. Note the Hebrew, fiery serpents. Ha seraphim, ha nechashim. Nechashim is the plural form of nachash. Nachash is, is snake. Nachashim is serpents or snakes. But maybe you heard the first word, fiery snakes. Ha seraphim. Seraphim. Aren't those angels? You know what I'm talking about? The seraphim and the cherubim, right? And in fact, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Awesome. Isaiah 6, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So I don't know what that means. Does that mean he took him with tongs and the tongs are in his hand? Or he took him and went, psh, there you go. <laughs> He's a seraphim. He can do that. Don't confuse seraphim with serpentine. Because they're very different words. This has led some, actually, seraphim nechashim, it's led some to say, well, maybe the seraphim look like serpents. Uh, no, the seraphim look like fire. Because the word seraphim, as applied to the angels, but also in other places, literally means fiery or burning. Fiery. Doesn't mean snake-like. So even though seraphim, nachashim are, are put together to describe fiery serpents, when it's just seraphim by itself, it's a fiery being. Hey, that fits. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, quoting Psalm 104, verse 4, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It says in 
Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Listen, when you get to heaven and you see the cherubim, when we study Revelation, we look at the cherubim, four faces, awesome, kind of freaky. That's going to blow our minds. You know who else are there? The fires, the flames, flaming angels, the seraphim. We have no idea what we're about to see in heaven. It's going to be amazing. But there ain't nothing angelic about these fiery serpents. They're just there biting, snapping, and poisoning. Serpents are never, get this, serpents are never pictures of salvation in the Bible. Serpents are only always a picture of sin. Sin and its consequence. That's why God's sending the serpents. It's a picture of sin. Now, some in reading the story have argued against God's intervention. McLaren also says, the valley which stretches from the Dead Sea. Did I already read that? I think I did. I already read that, so I don't have to read it again. Some say, hey, the issue is the snakes were already there. That the people of Israel came down, and they're just traveling, and a, a swarm happened, or an infestation of snakes. Hey, that's not unheard of. So you're trying to tell me that it's a divine thing, but it could have happened naturally. You know what? The people know better. That's how we know for certain. Look at verse 7 again. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. We have sinned, they say. We have sinned. This isn't just an infestation or superstition. The people know better. And I think we always do. The people know. They, they recognize the fallout of their sin. Don't you? I mean, we may try to deceive ourselves, but ultimately when things start going bad because we've made wrong choices, we know why things are going bad. We get it. This is what I did. We may not want to admit it, but we get it. We tend to know when the affliction is from the Lord because we have sinned. And they see this. And it's funny because they're not coming out and blaming the Lord. They're saying, we sinned. They're confessing. They're taking it on themselves. They wake up one morning to snakes in the camp, biting and burning and killing, and they know why. Six, uh, Romans 6.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the deal. And we know it. You know, people know it. Even non-believing people in this world, they know that the fallout is the consequence of their wrong choices. People know this, unless the conscience gets seared. But the conscience is there to prod and to say, you know, you know why this happened. You know what you did. And this is the fallout. This is the consequence of your behavior. People know, and I, I still believe this, that people know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's something that's inherent in humanity. What's actually harder for the rebel heart to accept is not that we've sinned, but it's what Paul says in the next verse, Romans 6, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, human pride recognizes, even accepts, sometimes embraces sin much faster than it does redemption. Because it's rebellion. Oh, yeah, I know I did that, whatever. But to be redeemed requires me to turn 
to the Lord. Redemption requires faith in the Redeemer. You don't come to faith unless, unless you confess. You got to trust in him. And note the pattern here between Israel and Yahweh. Uh, Psalm 119.67, we looked at Wednesday night, says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. In other words, I wandered off, God afflicted me, and I came back. And that is the pattern of God in Israel through all history. We see this again and again. And this is Israel's last affliction for rebellion in the wilderness, but there will be more, not in the wilderness, but in the land. And across history, there will be more afflictions because Israel go astray, God will afflict, and they'll come back. And they'll go astray, God will afflict again, and they will come back. And even speaking of days to come and a fiery judgment, Zechariah 13, verse 8 says, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They'll call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they're my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. When? When the fire comes. When we go through the fire. There's a hard story because you still have to ask the question, why would a loving God afflict like this, fiery serpents. Why would he do it? Because fire is purifying. Fiery trials and afflictions, they have a cleansing effect on us. They have a proving, resetting effect, especially where the faith is mature. And that's why even, you know, you'll see with new believers, you'll see little troubles, but they don't seem to be as big as sometimes they are for more mature believers. God knows what you can take. He knows what you can handle. He's not going to give you more than you can, than you can handle. And, and so as a mature believer, sometimes, and I, I say this to you mature brothers and sisters in Christ, your afflictions may be heavier. But you will have the maturity to recognize that and understand God's cleansing, God's purifying. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your, your testing, that is your proving, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. By the way, just tuck this thought away, but the word exultation means lifting up, lifting up. So the Israelites know their God. They're his people, right? You with me on that? They are still following. They're rebellious here, but they still know who God is. And in this rebellion, the Lord brings affliction to draw the rebellious people back to him, after him. It's, again, it's the believer who knows better that's getting fiery ordeals to interrupt sin, to turn us around, and to strengthen us yet again. Peter also said in 1 Peter 4, 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Hey, we need to expect to be judged, to be proven, to be tested, to be tried, to be purified. We have another word for it. It's sanctification. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus himself said in Revelation 3, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, 
be zealous and repent. So affliction, and then comes, well, then comes confession. Watch the result. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And even as the red-hot searing pain of the fiery venom surges through their veins, they confess. They're back confessing. See, affliction and then confession. Followed by intercession. The holy affliction is working. Watch this. It's confession followed by intercession. And Moses interceded for his people. Confession first, then intercession. Now, now Les will tell you, I'm a product of intercession. I've heard him say that many times. In calling people to intercede one for another, and especially intercede for those who are lost. But that's intercession that will lead to confession. This is different. This is confession that precedes intercession. What do you mean? We're talking about believers. And with believers, that's the pattern. Once you believe, once you've given your life to Christ, confession precedes intercession. What do you mean? I mean, I confess, and Jesus intercedes for me. I come to the Lord confessing my sin. Jesus takes it and intercedes. He's the mediator. He's the go-between. It's marvelous because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't have to be afraid to confess what I've done. I hate my sin. Ashamed of what I've done, I come to Jesus and confess it to him, and he intercedes, and it's taken. It's gone. It's confession, then intercession. Moses is amazing to me. At this point, 120 years old, how much whining and complaining and miserable, grump, miserable grumpiness has he dealt with? If I had been Moses, and they came and they said, Rick, we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Well, it says Moses interceded for the people. I think what I would say is, you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You cost me the promised land, and now you want my help. <laughs> now, here's some Neosporin. Wipe that on your bites. If that doesn't work, call 911 or someone who cares. <laughs> Moses, 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 what a humble man, immediately intercedes for the people. Love does not rejoice when others hurt or when wrong is going on. Love rejoices in righteousness. And Moses, he turns, he begins praying, despite 40 years of complaining, whining, grumbling, contentions, and rebellions, the humble Moses is back on his knees for this people. Confession, then intercession. As the Bible says, James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And note this, I've never seen it this way before, but it says, then the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know who the most effective prayer is? Is Jesus. He's the righteous man. He is the effective prayer. He is the one who intercedes, Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to him, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Confession followed by intercession. Back it up a bit more. It's rebellion followed by affliction followed by confession followed by intercession. 
In spite of all of my grumbling, complaining, whining, contentions, and rebellions, when I confess, recedes. And, and not because he has to. Jesus intercedes because that's who he is. That's his heart's desire. But watch this. Even though Moses prayed for the people, the snakes didn't slither away. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze or copper serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. God did not make the snakes go away. He gave them a way to be healed. Snakes are still crawling. But now there's a bronze serpent. Now, this, this could, like I said, it could either be bronze, which is the biblical color of judgment, you know, the bronze altar of sacrifice. So perhaps that's why it was bronze. But I think more likely we're talking copper. We're talking pure copper to evoke the idea perhaps of the reddish spots or stripes or even the color of the snakes themselves. Perhaps it was, it was actually a copper. And there's a Hebrew word play here. This Bronze or copper serpent is Nahash, snake, Nehoshet. Nahash Nehoshet, which means snake of copper, snake of bronze. By the way, they're traveling, remember again, through the region of, the, of Elat down there. There's another area down there called Timnah. Timnah is in southern Israel, the southern, uh, re southern reach of the, of the Negev. Timnah. And Timnah is famous for its copper mines. There's copper in those hills. And in 1969, a, an archaeologist named Benno Rothenberg dug up what was an ancient Egyptian temple that had been abandoned in Timnah and taken over by, get this, the Midianites. In 1150 B.C., the Midianites took over this temple and refashioned it. In fact, they refashioned it in a way that it looked like a tabernacle in its shape. Why, why would they do that? Well, Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite, and Moses' wife was a Midianite, and they came through Midian. In fact, when they crossed the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, they, they would have been there in Midian. So it's not surprising that there would be some connection there, and, and even more so, when Rothenberg uh, unearthed all of this, one of the things they discovered there was a five-inch-long copper snake. Little copper snake, little, little idol that was there. So the Midianites in their temple in Timnah, this same area, had crafted a copper snake. Where do you think they got the idea? See, it came after. But sadly, they weren't the only ones, and I'll just quickly point this out to you, they weren't the only ones to play uh, idolatry with a copper snake. In fact, over in 2 Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, it tells us, it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became queen, uh, king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah. Listen, he also broke in pieces 
the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. See, that, that, that would be my fear. Lord, if you have Moses make a copper snake and put it up on a standard, they're going to follow it. It's going to become idolatry. Lord, why, why would you do that? And you and I know how quickly we idolize things, how quickly we take physical things that are supposed to direct us to spiritual things, and yet we hold on to the physical, and we idolize those things. Listen, the power was never in the copper snake for healing. Note that the people were not to touch the snake or burn incense to the snake or sacrifice to the copper pole. What they were to do was look at it. Just just look. That's all they were to do. No. The copper snake was given as a brazen symbol of their sin. That they would look at that and go, we have sinned. A reminder that this is all consequence of our rebellion. They're looking at their rebellion, my friends. And then having faith that God would heal them, and so he would. It's faith. Faith is what healed them. Which is why Hezekiah broke that thing apart. By the way, it's called Nehushtan. That sounds so impressive. Nehushtan just means a copper thing. But listen to this. Hezekiah, why did he do it? Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. I love that about Hezekiah. He trusted the Lord. He clung to the Lord. Now again, God didn't give them an idol to represent his deity. He said in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make any graven images of anything in heaven above or on the earth below. You don't don't make any idols that are supposed to represent me. That was the problem with the golden calf. They didn't make the golden calf as some other god. They made the golden calf to represent Yahweh so they can look at that and worship Yahweh and God says, I'm no calf. You can't, there, there is nothing that represents me. So understanding God's intent, the copper snake on the pole was not a representation of deity, but of their sin. A symbol to represent their sin and the painful consequence. And I'm I'm really trying to drive this home for a reason. So get this. They're looking at their sin. But in looking at their sin, it was faith in God that healed them. So the bitten person was told, when he looks at it, he will live. That line is repeated. When they looked at it, they lived. They had to look at the pole. Just look at the pole and you're healed. Now, as a child, I would have been really happy if you told me all you got to do is just look up at that snake and you don't have to get a shot. (laughs) I, I would have been down with that. But isn't that weird? It's kind of, kind of nutty, actually. Look at a snake on a stick. You've just been bitten by a fiery serpent. Let's say by a copperhead rattler. You've just been bitten and says, oh, oh, someone goes, no problem. Look right here. Dude, get me some anti-venom. <laughs> I need serum. I need a fast ride to the closest hospital. Look at a pole. It's divine, it's divine inversion. Understand, and a lot of the sacrifices were 
taking brutal, ugly things and inverting them to be saving. And, and, and this takes this snake on the stick, the snake that doles out poison and the healing serum flows by the Holy Spirit when they looked at the serpent on the standard. So an earthly thing to express a spiritual truth, a spiritual healing, a spiritual reality. Now, back to Jerusalem. Go back over now to John chapter 3. Nicodemus is not getting it. This, this brilliant teacher, he's not, get, he's not understanding what this born-againness is all about. And Jesus turns back to the snaky story of Numbers 21. And again, listen to it again, verse 14 of John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Do you get it, Nick? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And I still think Nicodemus is probably sitting there going, I get this picture maybe of like Patrick on Spongebob with a little drool. Not quite picking up what's going on here. Do you get it, Nicodemus? The serpent scenario is actually a picture of God's love. See, because Jesus then says, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The serpent on the stick was given to the people of Israel because God so loved loved Israel, loved them too much to allow their rebellion to waste them in the wilderness. He loved them, so there was punishment doled out. He loved them, so there was affliction. Spare the rod and spoil the child. See, in our culture, we say, no, 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 you cannot discipline anyone wrong. You do if you love them. The Lord did it of love. It's, it's affliction to bring conviction. Pain for gain, right? Poison to reposition them for the promised land. That's why God did it. By the way, it's been suggested that those who died in this last rebellion in the wilderness would for the most part have been the last of that first generation that God said would die in the wilderness, it was most of the older people. Now, we don't have any basis for believing that, but that's, some have said that, and I find that interesting. God said they're all going to die in the wilderness, and so perhaps this was the final group that was still first-generation rebellion. But Jesus does something amazing here, kind of the point of the whole thing. He inverts the punishment on himself, on himself. Jesus compares himself, of all things, to the serpent. And this is the most shocking issue of the story. Because you know, in the Bible, from beginning to end, the serpent has always represented all things sinful and rebellious. That's what the serpent is. A picture of Satan, a picture of sin, a picture of lies and deceit and luring. Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said. Really? Are you sure? Introducing doubt to Eve. Ultimately, the Bible says Eve was deceived. Adam just blatantly sinned. My daughters are trying to figure out who to blame, you know. Naomi and Anna Marie both have asked me, so, so, so do I get mad at Adam? 
Who get mad at Eve? And I'm like, well, Eve was deceived. So, so Anna Marie's like, so it really wasn't her fault. So it's Adam. No, 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 no. I mean, she sinned. She was deceived and she sinned. Adam just blatantly sinned. Anna Marie's like, why did Adam blatantly sin? And I said, well, it probably has something to do with the fact that his you know, naked wife is offering him fruit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Jesus compares himself to that serpent. Again, Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's the serpent. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's me. What? He compares himself to a, a, a serpent. Yeah. The serpent. Listen. I said this as we began. The serpent is not a picture of salvation. The serpent is a picture of sin. And Jesus says, when you look up at the cross, that's me. That's me. Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as a sinner, but looking like all of us in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And it's even more intense, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you think about Jesus on the cross, when you look at Jesus on the cross, it's not, it's not, oh, I feel so bad that he died. Oh, I feel so bad that he was hurt and brutalized. I do, and I don't mean to undermine that or, or downplay that. But when you look at Jesus on the cross, you are looking at the end result of sin. That's what sin looks like. When it's full-blown in everything that it's accomplished, a brutalized, torn, disfigured, unrecognizable, pathetic figure on a cross. That's sin. And Jesus says, that's me. Nicodemus, that's what I, I took it all. He's saturated. He is dripping. He is soaked in our sin. And when we look at that, we're not looking at healing. We're looking at sin. Jesus compares himself to the serpent. And Jesus claims the lifting up the lifting up. We know that they would lift up the cross and drop it down into that post hole. And it would jar the body and send the shoulders out of joint. And Jesus claims the lifting up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Listen, get this, put it all together. If the serpent prefigured Jesus, then the standard prefigured the cross. The standard and the serpent, Christ and the cross. For Jews require a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the heart of our message, my friends. Jesus on the cross becoming sin to take your sin, literally draw the poison of your sin out of you and to take it onto himself as he's lifted up on that standard and he says, look at me and believe that I did this for you. And you'll be saved. He claims the lifting up. We preach Christ crucified, uh, crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
But to them which are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, if you want a visual of the ugly, vile, sick, bloody outcome of sin, you look at Christ on the cross. That's the point. He embodies the poison, the wounds, and the pain, and ultimately the death of sin. Some have even suggested, and it's possible, that when Moses put the serpent up on the standard, that the serpent was vertical. That you would have been looking at a cross. Where the cross beam was the serpent and the standard was the pole. As the copper serpent had to be lifted up for the sick and the dying to see, Jesus also says, John chapter 12, verse 32, and I am I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In, in essence, will draw all of their sin. I'll draw out the poison. I'll draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The standard is the cross and the sin bearer is the Christ. And by the way, I know it's a shocking parallel, but I'm not the one who made it. Jesus did that. And Paul says over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, note this, when you were dead in your transgressions. So think about the snake-bitten person. They, they set up a standard with the snake on the pole. It's going to be in one place. You're going to have to get there wherever you are in camp, wherever the standard is set up, probably there before the tabernacle, but we don't know exactly where Moses set it up. Wherever you're in camp, you get bitten. Someone's got to get you there so you can see it. You've got to lay eyes on it. And not just lay eyes on it, you've got to believe. But how many people died just even trying to get there? See, that's our state. We never even got there. We were dead before it was raised up. We're among the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us. He's talking about the law. The certificate of debt with decrees against us. Because we can't keep them. That which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, See, that's something else Jesus did. And it's just, I mean, the pictures go on and on. Jesus was not only the snake on the cross, the serpent on the cross, the representation of sin on the cross, but you know what else he bore in himself on the cross? The law. He internalized, he kept the law perfectly. The law was up on the cross. The law which could only condemn, along with the sin that condemns, Jesus has it all on the cross. Paul says when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The cross. The standard is the cross. The sin bearer is the Christ. And by the way, there's another subtle hint because Jesus, Jesus, it, 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 he claims the lifting up, right? He compares himself to the serpent, claims the lifting up, and there's a subtle hint in the lifting up of Christ of another lifting up, but hold that thought just a second. Compares himself to the serpent, claims the lifting up. Number three, last thing to note, Jesus conditioned our healing. He conditions our healing. John chapter three, verse 15, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Or, Whoever believes in him will have eternal 
life. The condition of your salvation, the condition of the poison being drawn out and healing coming in is faith. Eyes of faith, you gotta look. You gotta look to the cross. It is not a serum, it's a savior. You've got to look to Jesus, believing that he alone, Jesus Christ alone, is the sole condition of our healing. Just as with the people, there was no serum. They didn't develop an anti-venom. There's none of that. Their healing came by one thing, faith in the grace of God. Faith that God would, in fact, heal them if they would look up at this pole. McLaren, once again, says, our eternal life is in Jesus. And from him, it flows into our poisoned, dying nature, the sole condition of receiving it into ourselves, that new life, free from all taint of sin, and mighty enough to arrest the venom that is diffused throughout every drop of our blood is faith in Jesus lifted up on the cross. It's the cross. God says to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 22, look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me, note this, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Wait, I thought that was for Jesus. Exactly. Look to me, God says, and be saved. Which is why we quote this over and over and over, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of faith. He is the one lifted up. By the way, I, I said there's a subtle hint of the lifting up, a greater lifting up. Not only Jesus lifted up on the cross, that's true, and he was. But Jesus indicates something that happens beyond Calvary. Listen to the context again. What he said right before taking Nicodemus into the story of the serpent. Verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, implying no one has, but the one who's come down is going to. You got that? Pretty simple. No one has Ascended, except the one who's descended, who is, you know, then finishing the sentence, is going to be the one who ascends, who is lifted up. The next sentence, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Don't stop at the cross. He's lifted up at the cross, but Jesus was also lifted up to the throne of glory, lifted up to the heavenlies. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Acts 2, 33. Peter says, therefore, having been exalted, exalted, the word is hupso'o, and it's the same exact word that Jesus uses here as Moses hupso'od, as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, therefore, having been Hupso'od, honored, lifted up, exalted to the right hand of God the Father, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus lifted up on the cross and lifted up into glory. The same Jesus who took all that sick, filthy, poisonous sin on himself, lifted up and then lifted up. 
And Paul puts it all together. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, quote, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who is lifted up on the cross like the serpent on the pole, was lifted up into glory. And we are to look to him, the one lifted up. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said Jesus was never meant to be treated as a curiosity in a museum. He is intended to be exhibited in the highways that those who are sin-bitten may look at him. Where is the preaching of the cross? Where is the call to repentance? Where is the confrontation with our own sin that we might be truly saved? You know why the cross is so offensive? The cross is a confrontation of my sin. I look at it and in all its ugliness and brutality I have to deal with the fact that it's my poison on him. The standard is the cross. The sin bearer is the Christ. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Father, that's the message. And it's basic and it's simple, but it is our message. That's the gospel. Father, would you remind us again of the cross and draw us back again to the preaching and the speaking and the declaring and the sharing of the cross. And Father, we wouldn't try to be foolish in talking people into being like us or coming to church or, or doing Christian stuff because blessings that might come with it. Lord, all that's legit, all that's good, but what we need to see is the sin that is sacrificed for. We need to be confronted. The world needs to be confronted with its sin just as we are so that we will know our only hope is Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray for us this morning, any guilt, any shame, anything that we're carrying, any afflictions, Lord, that they would turn us to you again in faith, to cry out to you for your intercession, Jesus. And for anyone who doesn't know you, who has not given their heart to you by faith in what you've done, I pray that would happen today. I pray for open hearts and readiness to receive this gospel message, the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we believers remember the cross and look to the cross, would you confront us with our continual ongoing need of Jesus, looking unto him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.